I want to start with some uh, words from Graham Tomlin, who's a bishop and a theologian. And he wrote uh, last year an article in the Times in which he was talking about the struggle to find meaning and purpose in a post-Christian culture where there isn't necessarily a belief in God or any kind of bigger picture to hold on to in seeking to find our true identity. He asks, where then do we look to find moral guidance and direction? Well, we look inside. We look not to the heavens or the hills, but into our own hearts. We stop looking outside ourselves to God or the wisdom of the past and start to look into our own emotions and desires, our own inner emotions and desires. We think if only we were able to peel off every layer of expectation laid upon us by society, the irritating demands that others place upon us, we would find our true selves hidden within, like a cook preparing an artichoke, peeling away rough leaves to find the tender, hidden heart inside. Yet what if we are in fact more like onions than artichokes? What if when we peel away the expectations of others, the roles we play in society, what we get to at the center, well, there's nothing there. What if there is no mysterious self waiting to be discovered, no essence of me that is stifled by the people who expect me to play roles prescribed for me? In an onion, the layers are not disposable intrusions, they are the onion itself. What if the relations and the roles we play as citizens, neighbors, spouses, friends, partners, and parents, what if they do, in fact, make us who we are? You are more like an onion than an artichoke. It's some wisdom for me to leave you with in my last Sunday preaching. Now, if I understand what Graham Tomlin is getting at, He's not saying that the search for meaning is meaningless or that authenticity is, is, is something that we shouldn't seek, but rather that we're looking for it sometimes in the wrong place. We're going about it in the wrong way. He's implying that if we really want to find out who we are, who we're meant to be, that this is not something that's discovered by simply looking within, but it can only be found out in relation to others. At the core of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and I think this is made very clear in the first chapter, is the message that you are made by God on purpose and with purpose. But I think Paul would go on to say that it is only possible to discover who you are, who you are meant to be, and who you were made to be when you find your identity in Christ and in the context of the community that we call the church. So as we dig in to a little deeper together on this passage in Ephesians 4, it seems to me there are two or three steps to help discover who you are, who you were meant to be, who you were made to be in Christ and in community. So firstly, if we're going to be who we were meant to be and made to be, then Paul would suggest in this passage that there is brokenness to leave behind. There is brokenness to leave behind. Look with me at verse 17. So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. 
I insist on this in the law that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Not for the first time in this letter, Paul wants the church in Ephesus to draw a pretty clear and stark distinction between who they were and how they lived before they met Jesus and who they are and how they're meant to live now they are part of his family, now they are part of the church, now that they're following him. However, I think it would be really easy to misunderstand what Paul is getting at more specifically here, so I want to clarify a couple of things I don't think he means. Firstly, I don't think Paul is making a point about abandoning ethnic identity. Despite his use of the term Gentiles, Paul is not asking this predominantly Gentile church to adopt a Jewish cultural identity. Paul was a Jewish Christian, but one of the clear aspects of his life and of his legacy was ensuring Gentile inclusion to the church. The fact that Jew and Gentile together were part of God's family on the basis of grace and grace alone. He literally wrote entire letters on this subject. Now, translating this to today's context, I think it's worth therefore saying that inviting people to follow Jesus does involve inviting people to change, to live differently. But inviting people to follow Jesus and live differently does not equal inviting people to adopt or to adapt to our own church's particular human culture. Secondly, Paul is not here making a crude claim about the inherent moral superiority of Christians. Let me explain what I mean. Paul is not saying that people inside the church are inherently or automatically better or morally superior than those on the outside. In Ephesians 2, Paul made it pretty clear that salvation is a free gift of grace from God. Salvation happens through Christ without human engineering. And therefore, he says, because this is a gift from God, salvation, being one of God's people, is not something that you can simply boast about. It's not a badge of honor, but rather it is simply a way of saying, I belong to Jesus, who by grace has saved me. And therefore, in that sense, being a Christian doesn't make you better than anybody else, but hopefully it does mean that you are better than you were or would be otherwise. Being a Christian doesn't make you better than than anybody else, but it does hopefully mean that you are better than you were or would be otherwise. And this, I think, brings us to the heart of what I really believe Paul is getting at in verse 17. And that when we find ourselves in Christ and in the community of his people. Well, part of that journey of following Jesus means there is brokenness to leave behind. At the cross, Jesus meets us in our desperate need of his grace. Jesus is able to carry the burden of our baggage, of our brokenness. He's able to take our sin upon himself. However, when he invites us to follow him, he does invite us to leave our brokenness behind. And by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes, oftentimes, we hear stories in which, in quite dramatic and miraculous ways, addictions and broken patterns of behaviors get healed and transformed and put to one side right at the beginning of somebody's story. But oftentimes, our journeys and our stories are slightly messier than that. 
And it may well be that you have been following Jesus for a long time, and in so many ways, you've come so far, and there's so much stuff you've left behind, but there is a particular area of brokenness. There's a particular problematic pattern of thought or behavior that is lingering, and it is dragging you down. And I don't need to name examples, because as I was talking, something may well have popped into your mind, and so I don't need to name anything. Now, the reason I want to say this is not to shame you. I just want to name something that I think is true. And something, sometimes I think it's true, but we don't really own up to it when we talk in the way that we talk about the Christian life. I think this is particularly evident in the way that we do testimonies sometimes. A lot of the time when we tell stories, we can fall into a trap of telling a very oversimplified before and after story. This is a very crude analogy, but I don't know if you've ever seen online those sort of annoying uh, adverts that are normally for kind of diet pills or some kind of diet system. And oftentimes what you have is a picture of the same person, and it's kind of a before and after claiming that, that there's going to be like remarkable results for going on this program. But one of the dirty trade secrets of these kinds of adverts is often it's the same person uh, who has had the photo taken on the same day. And what's happened is they've been asked to stand in a certain angle, uh, a certain kind of unflattering angle for one shot, and then they move to another and they kind of suck themselves in, and then there's a little bit of Photoshop editing, and there we are, we have an advert. And sometimes we can fall into a similar trap in terms of how we present the story of our lives and our testimonies, right? I'm not for a second trying to deny or denigrate the genuine transformation that Jesus brings about. But sometimes, actually, sometimes a little far into our journey of following Jesus, there's brokenness we leave behind. But we're so embarrassed to admit this or face up to this, then rather than confront this in community or in confession or at the cross, we decide that in order to keep up the facade, in order to keep up the crude before and after picture, what we're going to do is spiritually just suck it in, hold a strong posture, breathe in and hope that nobody notices what we're carrying. And some of you and some of us carry brokenness for far too long. Some of us know that deep down, we're engaging in behaviors that are not becoming of the people that we are becoming. And this is what Paul wants to invite you and I to leave behind. This is what Paul wants to invite you and I to leave behind. But here's the good news. For those of you who are maybe on the fringes of faith, I always love to uh, remind myself of this line attributed to the North African Bishop Augustine. Every sinner has a past. No, I've got that wrong. Every saint has a past, and every sinner has a future. And so whatever brokenness you're carrying, there is a future that has healing and restoration written into it. And actually, so often I think the reason why we try and just hold our posture is because we forget that actually Jesus' fundamental posture towards us is far more gracious than the one we have for ourselves. Maggie, thank you very much. She spotted the, uh, the very old water there that I nearly took a drink from. Thank you. 
There is brokenness to leave behind. Secondly, there is a greater beauty to embrace. There's brokenness to leave behind, but there's a greater beauty to embrace. Now, this second part may not seem immediately obvious from the text that we've just had read, but I want to suggest that it is a pretty strong and important implication when we consider the way that Paul describes the kind of broken behaviors he wants us to leave behind. In verse 17, Paul describes the futility of thinking that formerly defined the Ephesians' lives. In her commentary, Lynn Coick points out that actually what Paul does here, and in verses 18 to 19, is not dwell so much on the kind of moral failures associated uh, with this kind of behavior, but rather what he really majors on is the fact that this kind of behavior doesn't work. It's futile. The other place Paul uses a phrase similar to this is in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, faith without the resurrection is futile. In other words, it's empty, it's hollow, it doesn't work. And what Paul is saying fundamentally here in these verses is that the kind of behaviors that so often define a life outside of Christ, well, it, it's, it's that they don't work, it's that they don't lead anywhere. If you to read verses 18 and 19, Paul is not describing, as far as I can tell, or at least not in the main sense, a series of predetermined, rational, deliberate decisions to disobey God and to indulge in broken behaviors. That's not fundamentally what he seems to be describing here. As far as what I can read, he's describing a vicious cycle that people get into of trying to find something, missing it, and getting further and further away from God and from his will for their lives. He's describing an ignorance that leads to separation from God. He's describing how a hardened heart leads to an insensitivity, an inability to sense God's will and presence. And how this insensitivity look, leads to people looking to somehow awaken their senses in other more problematic areas. That's what I think Paul is describing. And this reminds me a little bit of um, some of what Brené Brown, the uh, researcher, talks about in, in a kind of TED talk she wrote on shame. She talks about how often what happens is that humans, when faced with maybe our brokenness, when faced with negative um, emotions, when faced with an inability to necessarily locate meaning and purpose, well, we indulge in certain unhelpful habits in order to kind of numb our sense of shame or our fears or where we feel like we're missing the mark. But the problem, she points out, is that actually you can't just selectively numb. She says you can't selectively numb emotion. You can't just say, okay, here's some bad stuff, here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment. And because I don't want to feel these, I'm just going to have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. You can't numb those hard feelings without numbing the other effects. So when you numb those, you numb joy, gratitude, happiness, and then you end up miserable. And when you're looking then for meaning and purpose, you feel vulnerable. And then when you feel vulnerable, you have a couple of beers and a banana nut muffin. And this vicious cycle begins. Now, my point here is, you know, I like beer and I like banana nut muffins. But my point, and I think the point that is being made here, is that so often, actually, 
When we do not, uh, when we find ourselves confronted by brokenness in the hard place, or when it feels like we're not tapping into meaning and purpose, actually to try and distract ourselves and numb ourselves, that's when we're most in danger of falling into these dangerous cycles of broken behavior that Paul is describing in verses 18 to 19. But then Paul goes on to say, that, however, verse 20, is not the way of life you learnt. Verse 21, this is not the life you were called to when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth about Jesus. But what is this alternative? What is this other way? What is this truth about Jesus? Well, again, I sometimes think that we present this exchange wrongly. I want to say that there is a greater beauty to embrace than the kind of broken behaviors described by Paul in verses 18 and 19. Maybe this is just me or what I've heard or what I've sometimes thought, but so often it seems to me like the kind of exchange which people are often presented with in terms of embracing Christianity goes something like this. You have two options in life. You can lead a life that has enjoyment and indulgence but is wrong, or you can ex- if you want to become a Christian, you can leave that behind, you can exchange that, And you will be more bored, but you will be right. (laughs) Has anyone heard a gospel version that sounds something like that? On the one hand, there is brokenness and fun. On the other hand, there there is boredom, but maybe some smugness, right? That is so often how it's presented. But it seems to me that that is not what is the truth about Jesus. Jesus is the one who said... The thief comes to steal and destroy, John 10. But I have come that you might have life, and life in all its fullness. A life of true sensitivity. A life of true awareness of joy and beauty. It's an exchange of brokenness for beauty. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis described how actually so often we fall into patterns of broken behavior because, not because we um, have, because fundamentally we sort of set our expectations, our hopes too low. We were made for more, but actually we just aim too low with the kind of life that we want to lead. He said this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. And so, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So often we get caught in the kind of dangerous cycles of verses 18 and 19. Not because we have strong desires that really Jesus can't satisfy, but because actually so often we set our sights too low. We set our sights too low. What Jesus offers is not a life of bored moral uprightness, but a life of beauty 
There is a greater beauty to embrace where there is joy and meaning and purpose beyond what can be found anywhere else or in anything else. And so thirdly and finally, and we land with this, leave your brokenness behind at the cross. Embrace a greater beauty that is available in Christ. And then be true to your new self. Paul in verse 22 says, leave behind, put off your old self, but put on a new self, verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you're going to be who you were meant to be and made to be, then this is a journey that isn't going to end with just peeling away the leaves to find some kind of inner beautiful heart. But rather, it is, it is a journey that is going to only make sense and only work looking to Jesus, finding your identity in Christ, and learning to figure out what that means in the context of the community that we call the church. And so we're called to be authentic, but we're called to be authentic to our true new selves, the true and new selves that Jesus died for us to be and become. So how do we even begin this process of living out, becoming, and being true to our new selves? Well, on one level, I think it is worth saying, a little bit like a couple of weeks ago Steve said, church unity is a fact because Jesus has made one church, but actually it's something that we need to learn to maintain, and I think this is true. You know, uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5:17, I think, that you are a new creation. So on one level, it starts with actually just acknowledging what Jesus has made possible. You are a new creation. But the journey of Christianity, of following Jesus, is learning to live out the reality of who you already are in him. And we maintain this, I think, in a few ways. One is we maintain this through rhythms of life, through regularly coming to moments like confession, to spending time intentionally in Jesus' presence, so that we learn not to simply be true to whoever we want to be, but to be true to the new selves that we're becoming. Secondly, this is something that happens in relationships. That's why we have communities. That's why we have core groups. One of the things I love, if you go back to verse 14, Paul says that a mature church is often marked by an ability to speak truth in love. So finding places and spaces where we can actually have honest conversations about the brokenness we're facing and the brokenness we need to leave behind, well, that's going to really help us be true to our new selves. But thirdly, finally, and most fundamentally, I think it's that we gaze and we make intentional space to gaze at the beauty of Jesus. Because it's when we gaze at the beauty of Jesus, of who he is and who he's done for us, well, that's often when we're confronted both with our brokenness but also how much we are loved. It's when we gaze at the beauty of Jesus, it's that we realize that these patterns of behavior are simply mud pies when actually there is something far more profoundly beautiful on offer. And it's when we gaze at Jesus that we see the one who we are made and called to look like. 
Let me end with these other words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unfailed faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit.